0: Now then, our first story begins with a young British man who signs himself up for a two-year work exchange program in Australia. Good idea, right? Well, we'll let him tell you what happened next when he packed his bags and landed a stranger in a strange land.
1: I think I decided I I would want to go home, or I wanted to go home, probably about 12 hours after I actually landed.
2: It's a kind of classic story of a teenager leaving home for the first time. Brian was thrilled to get out, hungry for adventure, and pretty much as soon as he realized just how far away from the comforts of home he was, he immediately wanted to go back. The conditions were tough.
1: It was quite outbackish in those days, believe me.
2: The hostel was kind of fleabag.
1: rat infested.
2: And the food, well...
1: We ate beans most of the time from the can, and there was nowhere to cook them, so they were cold. Uh, but as part of the agreement, we had to stay there for two years or repay the airfare over and the airfare back. That was £700, when the salaries were £40 a month or something, you
2: know. Brian wasn't the only one who was homesick.
1: I had two Irish friends who were in the same boat as me. Neither of them wanted to stay in, in Australia. All we talked about was how, how to get out of Australia, uh, what we were missing at home. I think from my point of view, there were two things I actually wanted more than anything. Uh, one was to meet my old friends again. And the second thing, I wanted some cheddar cheese. Not Australian version, but real cheddar cheese from the UK. Uh, I think I spent most of my time trying to dream up ideas of how to get uh, out of there.
2: But he was trapped. He couldn't afford to pay his way out. At one point, he decided to stow away on a ship. He slipped onto a passenger boat called the Southern Cross, from Sydney to Southampton. But...
1: I'm actually not very good uh, at travelling over water. He got sick. Seasick, actually, but violently seasick.
2: He was chucked off the boat in New Zealand and sent back to the Fleabag Hostel to eat beans out of a can and commiserate with his two Irish friends. The more despondent he became, the more determined.
1: I was going home.
2: He'd write letters to his family, and six weeks later he'd get a letter back.
1: And a thought suddenly hit me. I decided that I would post myself from Australia to London.
2: Post himself, like mail himself, in a human-sized envelope.
1: I started gathering details about, could a, a parcel be sent cash on delivery to London? And the answer was yes. And what's the largest type of container one could send? Obviously, to be able to do all this, I needed some sort of crate I managed to find a woodyard and in the woodyard was my dream home this quite handsome looking box
2: it was only about the size of a mini fridge but it was exactly what he wanted
1: I wasn't the least bit frightened I wasn't worried, I wasn't afraid I wasn't anything it was in some ways a little bit like a game perhaps with the arranging and, and there was so much to do I had to get invoices for what was supposed to have been in the crate.
2: Do you remember the first time you floated this idea to another human?
1: The first time I floated this idea to another human, my two Irish friends actually, one of them agreed, if I want to do it, I should do it. The other chap, quite categorically, said, no way is it going to happen. It's too dangerous. Anything could go wrong.
2: All it takes is one foolish friend to agree to your foolish idea.
1: So we started planning it, you know. Once we had the crate, we needed some precautions. And so we used some rope to make a harness, because I remembered, of course, on an airplane you have a seatbelt. So I made, a we made, a harness which would strap me into the crate. Um, one of the sides of the box, we actually made so it would, or could theoretically, be opened from the inside of the box. And then we also equipped it with in-flight service. We put two bottles, two plastic bottles, in the crate, one full of water uh, and one empty. Uh, The empty one, I would leave the listener to guess what that was for. I had a flashlight and I also had a book of the Beatles, uh, Beatles songs. I then went on a complete diet, so I didn't eat for probably two days, or for obvious reasons. The day of the departure, my two Irish friends came over. I got into the crate, and as I got in, so I'm standing sort of waist high in this crate. My two friends said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, I'm absolutely certain I want to do it. I sat down in the crate with my legs up into my chest, strapped myself in, and my two friends nailed the top on. Nail by nail. With each nail, I was quite happy. With each banging sound for each nail, I was quite happy. There were little sort of slats of light coming through. It smelt, well, it smelt of fresh wood. Fresh sawn wood, basically. And it's something I think I'll always remember for the rest of my life. The the smell of the thing. Once the crate was loaded onto the taxi truck and my friends had said a very quiet goodbye as it was being loaded, I thought, oh dear, what have I got myself into? Should I be doing this?
2: Like, what were the things to finally be afraid of?
1: Lack of oxygen, the, the crate collapsing perhaps around me, dying from hypothermia... The crate getting lost in transit, I think dehydration was a very big issue.
2: That's a partial list. As his crate bumped down the road in the back of a pickup truck, the potential danger of his little trip finally began to dawn on him.
1: And then I think I counted that by saying to myself, it's a bit late to stop now, isn't it? We had signs all over the outside of the crate that actually said, this side up. Very simple to read, for most people anyway. Needless to say, when it arrived at the airport, they forgot this side up, and the crate was dumped unceremoniously upside down under the sun. And so uh, I stayed there without making a sound, but the box getting warmer and warmer and warmer under the Australian sun, standing on my head with my knees up in my chest. Not a very nice position to be in. In fact, very uncomfortable. I spent 24 hours upside down in the same spot. And of course that meant at night, the wind was blowing, it was really cold.
2: Did you think about giving up at this point? Like knocking on the crate and saying, help, get me out of here, this was a terrible idea.
1: Okay, I'd given this a lot of thought, obviously, whilst I was in the crate. Did I want to go ahead with this? And the answer was absolutely yes. There was no way now that I was going to give up. And the harder things became, the more convinced I was that I was not going to give up. And the thoughts of going home and having some cheddar cheese, I don't know why cheddar cheese, because I'm not a big cheese lover, but I was at that particular time.
2: So he sat there, upside down, in the wind, in the dark, and the blazing heat, thinking about cheese. Until...
1: I was quite joyous when, after 24 hours, I was suddenly put on a forklift again and put into the hold of another aircraft. Then I knew I was really on my way and I was really leaving Australia. Once you go from the sunlight into the aircraft anyway, light changes to darkness. There was actually no light on the flight at all. The plane took off. Entertaining myself was very difficult because, of course, there were not many options. And yes, I did sing a few songs. Trains and boats and planes can take me home.
2: But as the hours dragged on
1: and
2: and he was stuffed into this crate buried under a pile of cargo, it got a little less sing-songy. It got real.
1: Cold was the first to come on. I I felt, oh, as if I was sitting in a, a freezer, perhaps. The worst feeling was not the cold, it was the heat. It was actually freezing. But at the same time, it felt too warm. Too hot, boiling.
2: I can barely handle sitting in a coach class seat for seven hours.
1: I was having to put up with more and more pain. Oh, I wish I could move my arms or something. And of course, I couldn't straighten my legs. My legs were folded up in my chest the whole time. Anybody who sits in one position uh, for any length of time will find that the joints will seize up.
2: And it wasn't one flight. The plane would land and then take off, land and then take off again to refuel.
1: I couldn't move now, or I could hardly move. It was all over my body. I mean, I was in in a pretty bad way. I then also started to hallucinate. My biggest fear was that the aircraft developed engine trouble. And the only way for the aircraft to continue with its journey was to throw the freight out of the aircraft and you know on reflection it sounds stupid but I really thought that was going to happen well the plane eventually landed and I think I'm home I think I'm in London
2: he feels his crate being lifted off the floor carried off the aircraft ...and lowered to the ground. And then he was left alone.
1: And so, if I'm going to escape... uh, ...now's the time to try and do it. Except for the fact that I couldn't move. I mean, I literally, by then... ...couldn't move a muscle at all. So I waited. I waited... ...maybe six or seven hours. There were two... ...I could see two people walking in the warehouse they came over to my crate and and as they got level with it one of them jumped back in utter amazement as he said to his colleague there's a body in there and they were probably the worst words I'd heard in the whole five, four and a half days I'd been in the crate. (laughs) Because they weren't speaking with a British accent. I then knew I wasn't in London. They both went away for what seemed like eternity. Then, of course, this gaggle of people, literally, uh, descended on the crate. I could hear all this. I couldn't speak, my throat was so swollen, I couldn't speak at all, couldn't make a sound, actually. Eventually, it was an FBI officer, I think. He looked through the crate again. We literally met eye to eye, and he could see me blinking or whatever. And he said, "It's not a body in here. He's alive. It took him 20 seconds to rip the whole side of the crate off and to lift me out. But I couldn't talk and I couldn't move. They laid me on my back on the floor, and my knees were still... Tucked up into my chest. I was in a frozen position. I literally couldn't move. They tried to force my legs down, and as they did, the top part of my body lifted up into the air.
2: They took him to the Los Angeles Central Receiving Hospital. Of course, government officials, journalists, they all speculated that the international mystery man was some kind of fugitive, or an asylum seeker, or a secret agent no one guessed 19-year-old homesick guy from Wales who missed a properly aged cheese.
1: And people were very serious about this, uh, and they were talking amongst themselves. The Cold War was going full steam ahead at this time, and the first thought who I could have been was some sort of uh, spy, some sort of Russian spy or whatever spy, I don't know exactly. And I was thinking, this is ridiculous, how could they think I'm a spy?
2: But he couldn't talk. He was frozen, stiff. A team of nurses lowered him into a hot tub. They spoon-fed him ice cream.
1: As far as the jacuzzis and so so forth were concerned, it was rather like being a five-star hotel.
2: (laughs) Until after about 12 hours, he could talk with a tiny, scratchy voice. And once he started talking, they promptly drove him to the nearest FBI office.
1: When I... I first went into the FBI offices, I sat down in front of quite a senior agent.
2: The FBI agent wore a dark suit and told Brian that he was in the U.S. illegally and was facing two options. Either he would be shipped home or sent back to Australia. The choice was up to Pan Am Airlines. Then a phone rang.
1: The FBI agent put the phone down and he said, You are so lucky they're going to send you back to London.
2: They drove him through crowds of reporters and British expats and overnight fans straight to the airport, where they handed him a first-class ticket. As the plane took off, a stewardess came on the PA system.
1: We would like to welcome aboard Brian Robson, our stowaway from Melbourne, Australia. And the amazing thing, I don't think this would happen nowadays, but the amazing thing was that everybody actually clapped. As far as the... Getting home was concerned. I I obviously met all of my family and everything else. But the strange thing is that the appeal for cheese wasn't appealing anymore. I didn't want it anymore. Yeah, I I think to put some meaning into the whole thing is the fact that homing instinct is built into both human beings and pigeons. Both of us Well, certainly human beings always um, think or go back to their roots eventually.
2: So did you write the two Irish guys and tell them you made it?
1: That is my... Getting... The Irish people that helped me pull it off were really lifesavers in a way. Unfortunately, uh, I lost all their contact details. And so to this day, I have never actually manage to contact them or speak to them at all if you're listening let's face it fellas this was a harebrained scheme that you know could have got you into a lot of trouble and could have killed me and so i think all three of us need to get together and and have a pint and and, and decide not to do it again <laughs>
0: Now, Snappers, if you think you can repeat Brian's little journey here, please think again. We've got a little something to let you know this ain't happening. Do
1: you know, uh, after I did this, they introduced a method of trying to stop anybody else doing it. And this is how, t- how high tech it was in the early 60s. They were spraying freight with sneezing powder so that anybody in the crate would sneeze and they they knew people were in there or somebody was in there Um, that was their idea that was high tech in in 63
0: (laughs) thank you very very much Brian and keep your eyes out snap nation because Brian tells us this story is soon to be made into a film by bird flight films keep your eyes out for that big thanks to Jason Caffrey at the BBC for helping us track down Brian The sound design for this piece was by Snap Judgment's Renzo Gorio. And if you missed even a moment of this story, you're going to want to subscribe to the Snap Judgment podcast and rectify that situation because freshly back from maternity leave, never depart from us again. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. Snap judgment. The box in episode continues. The best dress ever, and the world's very oldest profession. All this and more. So much more. Stay tuned. Snappers, if you want to know my three secrets of storytelling for delivering stories that matter. Stories with power, stories you can use in the bar, the workplace, the stage. Secrets that will let you finish that book you said you were writing. Well, just donate right now to snapjudgment.org. And not just myself, but other Snap storytellers will give you their secrets to great storytelling. It's an exclusive video download that cannot be missed or get the Snap legendary download where you can see the legends of the Snap Judgment stage work their craft. Get both. Get either, but get something now, before April the sweet 16th, snapjudgment.org.